This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Muhammad Rustam about his wonderful new book, The Triumph of Mercy, Philosophy and Scripture in Mullah Sadra. What is the relationship between philosophy, mysticism, and scripture in the Islamic tradition? Muhammad Rustam has been thinking about this question for years. His intellectual curiosity is thoroughly explored in this new book, The Triumph of Mercy. Rustam introduces us to Mullah Sadra and his theory of scriptural hermeneutics developed most explicitly in his book, The Keys to the Unseen. Through his reading of Mullah Sadra, Rustam was trying to gather what kind of interpretive framework constituted a philosophical approach to the Quran. In Triumph of Mercy, the Tafsir Surat al-Fatiha, a commentary on the opening chapter of the Quran, is used as a touchstone for exploring Mullah Sadra's metaphysics, cosmology, theology, and soteriology. Through this study, we see how Mullah Sadra was indebted to earlier figures in the Islamic intellectual tradition, especially people like Surawardi and Ibn Arabi. In my conversation with Rustam, we discuss Islamic philosophy, the tafsir tradition, practical hermeneutics, God's essence and attributes, the Muhammadan reality, notions of existence or being, the significance of praise, and ideas about salvation, punishment, and hell. Our conversation also demonstrates how contemporary intellectual traditions are built through Rustam's clear admiration for his mentors, such as Todd Lawson, William Chittick, and Michael Marmora. Without any further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Welcome to New Books in Islamic Studies. Today I'm joined by Muhammad Rustam. Uh, we're going to be talking about his wonderful new book, The Triumph of Mercy, Philosophy and Scripture in Mullah Sadra. Muhammad, how are you? Uh, very well, Christian. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for, for making some time to talk with me. Oh, my uh, pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is a, this is a wonderful book, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on, uh, on the, this, this very pivotal figure we have in the Islamic intellectual tradition. Um, but before we get into some of the details... Um, Perhaps you could tell us a bit about yourself, uh, maybe a little bit about your, your training, uh, sure. people that might have been influential for you as far as uh, either your, your interests in Islamic studies or methodologies you use. Yes. All right. Well, um, that's, uh, that's a very good question in many ways. It's, um, it starts my own story, begins in terms of academic training uh, from the time that I entered the University of Toronto as an undergraduate student. Um, I, in, in my late teens, in the, in, in the 90s, when I, when I um, kind of decided to take the Islamic studies route, I, um, in a rather unconventional manner, decided to do so just before I entered into university. So I was kind of, you know, I had many, many various interests, and in, primarily in philosophy and religion, and then I noticed that the University of Toronto, they had an entire degree, an undergraduate degree in um, Middle Eastern Islamic Studies. It was a specialist degree. It was really comprehensive and designed in such a way to, in, in, in a sense, to produce Islamicists. Um, they since, I think, 2004 or so discontinued that degree. But myself and several other uh, colleagues, uh, I think, were the last graduates of that program. And it was an excellent program. It was designed to give you the broadest possible exposure to Islamic civilization. 
So there was a language component. You'd have to learn Arabic and Persian, a history component, a culture component, a thought component, and um, and it was so it was extremely comprehensive. And thus, when I entered in in my first year, I already had a clearly charted out kind of trajectory of where I wanted to be and what I needed to do to get there. So in many ways, I was uh, blessed by the very fortunate opportunity to begin uh, at a fairly early age in my in my own career. And um, many wonderful scholars uh, who, were, who were there and some of whom are still there uh, kind of took me under their wing from, from a very young age. And I mean, to all of them, if I start naming off names that okay. have to probably have a new podcast just in order to do that yeah no, no. but 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 in particular uh, michael marmora the late michael marmora was uh, was extremely influential upon me uh, from a very young age when i when i first began he was um such a such a consummate scholar and gentleman and he really um, encouraged me to uh, take the uh, take the high road to make sure that i learned arabic uh, well enough to engage the texts at a level that that he would have considered to be um, uh, worthy of his consideration, and that 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 would have meant really being able to engage the materials at a at a sophisticated level. Um, so, I had I had Professor Marmora at the very beginning, kind of as a mentor in many ways, and there were many other people. Professor Liaquet Takim, uh, who was at the University of Toronto for some time. And uh, um, Todd Lawson, who uh, uh, he, he would go on to become my advisor, and, and he's a very close friend of mine. And he also had a very important role to play, especially when I entered graduate school. And I'll I'll get I'll get there eventually. Um, in terms of uh, the the very beginning of my my studies, I, I knew that I wanted to focus on Islamic thought from a pretty early age, um, and at the same time, I had a deep interest in the Quranic sciences, in especially uh, Quranic Jesus. And I, I, I've, I was always seeking a way to kind of bring the different disciplines of Islamic studies together uh, in terms of uh, theology, philosophy, mysticism, those three main areas, and then also Quranic Jesus. So book um, naturally uh, was kind of like, you know, it, it, it brought together all of these different areas of inquiry in, in a manner. It was kind of like osmosis anyways. It was just all the different things that I was interested in. And this is the way I was able to bring it together. But yet, um, I think that had I, had I just remained uh, within one particular area of study from the very beginning, because that's always a tendency that students have to avoid becoming too pigeonholed at the beginning of their studies, you know, they say, I'm, I'm going to be a historian and I'm going to leave everything else out. Or I'm going to focus on philosophy and leave everything else out. Um, I, my, the program that I was in simply didn't allow me to do that. And I wasn't really uh, too interested, for example, in history. But there, was, there, there, there were like four mentor uh, credits in history. Indian history, Indian Pakistan, that is, um, uh, ancient Iran, things like this. So I, I was really forced to, to start considering the uh, field of Islamic studies um, and all of its uh, sub-disciplines in very um, vast kind of geographical and cultural terms. So uh, after about a year of my undergraduate studies, I uh, began studying Arabic and I realized quite quite early on that um, if I wanted to uh, become an Islamicist in a, in a serious way, I would need to really understand more than anything else, especially because I was I was concerned with Islamic thought, and my professors had always made very clear to me that the, that the Quran is so fundamentally important to the endeavor of a scholar, um, whether they're studying people who studied the Quran or whether they themselves are interested in the Quran or whether they're just writing uh, as as detached so-called academics um, discussing these issues in kind of journals and, and things like this, what you call the ivory tower kind of approach. Uh, so I, um, from, from, from in my early 20s, I began studying the Quran um, with, I had some local teachers. So one of my, one, a very good friend of mine, who's uh, somebody who has a, a long pedigree and uh, uh, he's a very well-established uh, scholar of the Quran, 
that began teaching me the Quran at a very young age, in, in my early 20s. I consider that young because of where I, where I am today. And, um, and so that, that, that was really beneficial because I was kind of pursuing you know, my academic studies in, in studying Islamic intellectual tradition in a, in a secular university. But at the same time, I had uh, the very fortunate opportunity to, uh, to study the Quran, to memorize large parts of it, um, and to really try and bring all of these disciplines together in a way that would be um, uh, that, that would be academically sound, that would um, allow for the greatest freedom for the kinds of uh, inquiry that I wanted to engage in, but do it in such a way that the uh, tradition and the authors about whom I was writing would not, if they were alive today, feel like they were being slighted or something like this. So the kind of indebtedness of an inherited past and the responsibility of a scholar um, today was something that was impressed upon me from a very early age. So I, um, I developed an interest as well in Persian literature in, uh, at, you know, in, in the middle of my undergraduate career. And I consider that a pretty important turning point because it opened up an entire uh, new world in many ways to me. I'm not a native speaker of Arabic or Persian, so I really had to work on both languages. And um, with the Persian in place, that, that also started to bring together several other interests that, that, that had been latent, but which, which you know, um, I hadn't really had a chance to explore, the intersection between literature and mysticism, um, the manner in which a scriptural exegesis and let's say uh, Persian poetry uh, function in the writing. So let's say some of the great giants like Rumi. Um, the school of Ibn Arabi was always uh, important interest for me. I've always been very much drawn to Ibn Arabi's writing. In many ways, I could say that my my undergraduate career, I, I, I pretty much avoided Ibn Arabi as long as I could for about three or four years until I really felt comfortable to to work with with him after having studied Ibn Sina having uh, very intimate contact with uh, Ghazali's writings and the, and the intellectual tradition really that kind of led up to Ibn Arabi. I finally decided to jump into Ibn Arabi's world. And when I did that, the, um, uh, the, the, the immediate uh, thing that occurred to my mind was Ibn Arabi is so important in and of himself, but his legacy is so vast in the Islamic, Islamicate world from India to China, as you know so well, and, uh, of course, Korea and Turkey, what's today Turkey, and uh, many other parts of the Muslim world, Malaysia. and But really, it's the Persianate context that uh, allows for the greatest flourishing of uh, the school of Ibn Arabis and, and, and commentarial tradition, let's say, on the Fasus and things like this. So I, uh, my, my interest in Persian naturally led me to the Persian reception of um, the school of Ibn Arabi, and that's kind of where my my dissertation started to um, take some of its shape. Was that Mulasadra stands at the end of not just uh, a Persian tradition or something like this, but he himself was a Persian you know, and native of Shiraz, who was a very close follower of Ibn Arabi, but who also was very much involved with Islamic philosophy. Um, he was a, one. He was the single most important. A later Islamic philosopher really revolutionized the field. Um, uh, of course, he had some very innovative things to say in the realm of theology, but he was also very much concerned with scripture as well. So, I, as my own interest started to take shape in a particular direction, I started to kind of see that the um, trajectory of my own intellectual development really paralleled the manner in which the later Islamic intellectual tradition would come to be formed. So that, 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 that was something that I couldn't have predicted from uh, the beginning of my studies, but I was kind of naturally led to uh, this way of viewing things just by virtue of having approached the Islamic intellectual tradition in as broad a, a fashion as possible. Now, towards the end of my undergraduate degree, therefore, I was posed with the question: Do I do I want to continue? Do I want to, uh, or have I been able to um, live up to the standards of scholarship that uh, my my teachers have trained me in? I remember and so many sessions I used to have with many of my teachers at the University of Toronto, 
like Professor Sebastian Gunter as well, um, and, and Maria Septelny, with whom I've studied. I've had a great opportunity to benefit from both of them and, and, and many others as well. They they always tr- uh, impressed upon me the importance of being as rigorous as possible. So I I would kind of naturally balked and said, "Am I am I ready? Do I need? Can I? Should I stop here?" maybe take a few years off and really see if this is what I wanted to do. I was still in my early 20s and I didn't know if 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 I was personally ready at that time. And um, several indications, uh, mostly of a vocation type, uh, impressed themselves upon me in a way that it became clear to me that I should I should continue with this uh, profession because that's always what I what I wanted to do and that I felt I felt fairly confident enough to continue in that direction. And so I was offered uh, um, uh, a direct entry into the PhD program at the University of Toronto. And and that prospect obviously was of great interest to me because I didn't have to take the usual route with the MA and I could just begin doing doctoral work. So I did that. And when I entered my PhD, uh, I, I, in many ways, it was kind of like a continuation of of this, you know, uh, long symposium that had been taking place in my uh, intellectual development, and in many ways, it started to come together now in the form of very specialized seminars. Uh, and I, again, I, I really had a wonderful time in, in every grad course I'd taken. And at that point, I started also traveling and meeting different professors uh, in North America and in Europe, and um, and trying to um, figure out, you know, the the the, the field, as they say in as broad terms as possible one of the one of the highlights certainly of my uh under of my graduate career was that uh, the late michael marmura before he passed away about i think about three or four years before he passed away we had a, a year-long seminar on avicenna together and that that was quite formative for me because it number one just showed me how little i actually knew huh. and uh, I'd, I'd, I'd go you know i'd t- take the take transportation take the bus to the, his office every once a week and to meet him and I'd be preparing this material like um, and it was just rude awakening after rude awakening every week he just showed me how I mean I really just didn't I was really in in the presence of of of, of, of a of a great man a great human being who um, was always so encouraging and when that would end I'd have another seminar the next day where I'd be studying with uh, my advisor Todd Lawson and and the same thing would happen <laughs> So I, 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 you know, there, there's always there's always a period when when uh, a person, if they're honest with themselves, they ask the, themselves, "Am I, is this, is am I really cut out to do this? And can I really be like these people, or or can I can I at least sit in the same room as them and and be in a conversation with them, in a meaningful conversation with them? And um, those seminars, they, I think they, I'm not sure. Uh, if if it's if it's if they're purposely designed like this, but they're really there to put students in their place <laughs> to to show them what they what uh, how much is how much there is for them to to do and 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 the facilitator of the seminar the the professor who convenes it is is clearly like gadfly in many ways trying to point them in the right direction and that's exactly what I found in Professor Todd Law as my as my um, uh, advisor, he always pushed me, and, and he really dedicated so much of his time and energy just to making sure that I, 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 I was able to live up to his own rigorous, really rigorous academic standards. So, by the time coursework ended, uh, I naturally was led into my uh, thesis topic, which I'm going to get to in a moment, uh, and uh, and and. Again, the thesis topic it was it was the natural kind of corollary to just the kind of coursework that I had been doing as well. So the thesis topic, in many ways, uh, also is related to this wider trajectory that began to impress itself upon me, or continued to impress itself upon me, I should say, after my uh, undergrad into my graduate studies. So there were many wonderful seminars. That were offered uh, at the at the University of Toronto, and I believe I believe there's still many of them are still there in, in different forms. There were courses on Hadith and um, and, and and Rumi's mystical poetry, and with Todd Lawson, uh, a number of very interesting seminars 
on the on the image of the prophet in Islamic literature, um, and um, so the time came to come down on on some kind of idea for the uh, for the thesis, the proposal, and all of these things. And uh, I uh, I I think that probably the the the, the turning point uh, in my own understanding of what I wanted to do as a scholar in, in its most concrete kind of form occurred to me when I, when I thought to myself, how is it that all of these disciplines that I've been trained in come together? Do they come together? And if so, how? Um, how is it, in other words, that the Islamic intellectual tradition is in conversation with the Quran? And in my case, because I was particularly interested in the discipline of philosophy, I was uh, concerned with the question of how did the Islamic philosophers in particular engage the Qur'an? What did they say about the Qur'an? Did they comment upon the Qur'an? Uh, if so, where, is, where, where can we find out about this? And, uh, of course, the secondary literature um, uh, was and, and, and largely still is, unfortunately, scant in this regard. Uh, secondary literature, not just in English, but also in French, in German, in Arabic, and Persian. Uh, there's just the, what we have, and what's what's actually there is is quite is quite um, uh, the, the, the 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 contrast is quite stark. Um, uh, sometimes you read the most kind of uh, basic generalization that Islamic philosophy is not concerned with the Quran in any concrete sense of the term, or that the Muslim philosophers were just paying lip service to the Quran because they lived in Islamic societies, and that they weren't really interested in it. Or that they saw the Quran as just kind of being a symbolic form of philosophy, and philosophy really what was very important, and religion was just for the masses. These kinds of common characterizations, which all of which are um, are, are very simplistic, and sometimes even um, uh, border on the asinine. Now, once I started investigating the matter for myself, I realized that that's not the case at all. The Muslim philosophers, from the earliest authors like Al Kindi, all the way to Ibn Sina. And, and onwards were very much concerned with the Quran and not just as a tangential uh, reality of their own intellectual project but as something that they felt was part and parcel of what it meant to be a thinking intel- intelligent agent and a religious being in their case of course their, the Quran was the scripture that they uh, inherited and that they believed in and so they, even though may not have had the same kind of approach to the Quran that you'll find, let's say, in, in, in let's say, uh, um, the, the work of a more standard Quran commentator like Zamaksha or something like this, where they're commenting on every single line of the Quran, they really do bring their worldview to bear on certain aspects of the Quran. And that alone is very much worthy of our attention. So that was my first signal into, into this uh, area of investigation. Al-Kindi, for example, um, who's in many ways credited to be like something like the first philosopher in in Islamic history, although that's not that's not that's a that's kind of a a great generalization. That's not entirely true. Um, he he has very interesting things to say about about the Quran and even some very important uh, commentaries upon the Quran in passing in his in his writings. Ibn Sina is the first author to in, inaugurate. Uh, an important chain of commentaries, a whole tradition, really, on the light verse, 2435 of the Quran. He's really the first one to come up with a philosophical interpretation of the light verse, which Michael Marmura incidentally translated many years ago. Uh, that, that, that work by him would be influential upon the likes of Razi, uh, Ghazali, all the way up to Mullah Sadra and onwards. So that was an indication that the philosopher were not uh, somehow, uh, they did not treat the Quran passively at all. They were very much engaged with it. Ibn Sina has many other uh, smaller commentaries upon the Quran, on the Surah class and other ones like this. But sometimes uh, you'll even find uh, some kind of, uh, I would perhaps even just call it something like a surprise, where uh, someone about whom you read in the secondary literature as not being the most faithful Muslim or somebody who was uh, who had a kind of pessimistic view towards religion, uh, namely Abu Bakr al-Razi, the early famous scientist 
mathematician and philosopher, uh, you find in his own writings too um, something that the secondary scholarship was um, surprisingly silent on, or or dismissive of, or they just or they just assumed that he was just somehow not really a religious man. And uh, I remember reading one one author where it says that this Abu Bakr Razi was against um, against scripture and he was against prophecy. And of course, the reports that have come down to to us uh, are from Razi's opponent, the other Razi, Razi, the Ismaili author, who really paints a pretty negative picture of Abu Bakr Razi. But in Abu Bakr Razi's own writings, in his medical works, as, as has been shown recently in, in in modern scholarship, Peter Adamson and and other authors, that um, that this this person Razi, who who was supposed to be anti-Islamic and a so-called free thinker, even though that's a very problematic term, he's got a great degree of deference and respect for the Quran, and it and it appears in his medical work. So that too got me thinking. Maybe these philosophers are not are not kinds of um, these rogue individuals. Even in the cases where we think they should be, like this, like this image of Razi, they clearly are not. Um, uh, outside of some kind of preconceived notion, once we examine their writings, we find out that there's a lot more happening, and there, there's a lot more happening with respect to the primary sources of the religion. Now, as a as a rule of thumb, what I started to notice was that the 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 more the Islamic intellectual tradition develops, the more there is an attention uh, a, a degree of emphasis upon integration. Upon bringing different disciplines together, kind of like what was happening to me in my own um, intellectual trajectory, where I'm trying to bring all these disparate holes together. By the time you get to someone like Fakhreddin Razi, the, the great theologian and philosopher and Quranic exegete, in the context of his Quranic commentary, for example, there's all these elements there. There's philosophy, there's logic, there's theology, there's cosmology, there's sometimes even uh, some one of the going theories in science and motion, and all of this is tied into the wider tafsir literature. That's a That synthetic trend is very common in the later period. And... Um, of course, the one author uh, in whom I noticed this trend to be uh, the most pronounced was the person about whom I wrote my book, uh, Mullah Sadra, Masaruddin Shirazi, who was born in southwestern Iranian city of Shiraz in 1571 and died in 1640 uh, on route to, uh, in Basra, on route to the Hajj. Um, and he's a major figure in the later uh, tradition, perhaps we can speak about him later but he he was the one author in islamic history uh is in terms of islamic intellectual history who not not only did he just comment upon the quran uh in you know just a string of verses or some chapters of the quran or something like this he wrote about 17 monumental works upon various aspects of the quran he never wrote a complete quran commentary he wrote several of those seven, uh, several of those works kind of theoretical expositions of the Quran. Some of them are more specific um, uh, commentaries on uh, select verses, like the light verse, and the vast majority of them are commentaries on individual chapters, like the first chapter of the Quran, or the 36th chapter, Surah Yasin, and so on. And and he also did the same thing for Hadith. So we have here a philosopher who stands at the end of a uh, long-developed intellectual tradition in Islam. That's already got a kind of synthetic spirit to it, which is evinced um, uh, from the let's say from the 12th century onwards. In particular, we have a man who um, is responding directly to Avicenna and to Sunnawari, but who's also very much influenced by Ibn Arabi and his followers, and he knows the Quranic commentarial tradition very well. Um, and at the same time. He's uh, he's a great philosopher. He's revolutionizing the discipline, and now he's bringing all of these disciplines together as an exegete, as a scriptural exegete, and not just in not just commenting on one or two verses. Not like Razi, where he's still operating largely within the framework of tafsir proper, but he's kind of doing philosophical commentary, and he's really um, extending a genre that had already been inaugurated. By the earlier uh, Islamic philosophers, so that really caught my attention, and so I started exploring Mullah Sadr in greater detail, um, having worked on him on his thought, and having been familiar with his uh, more strictly speaking philosophical views. 
I therefore ventured into his uh, Quranic works. And once I began to, um, once I realized what was in front of me and, and how little attention had been paid in Western scholarship to Moldesado's Quran commentaries, I knew that that's what I needed to um, uh, focus on for my thesis topic. And I had the right training and I had the right uh, advisor and the right uh, advisory committee to really push me in that direction. Uh, Mohammed, uh, if I could ask you to kind of uh, flesh something out here. Mm-hmm. So you just mentioned uh, Mullah Sadr's kind of relationship to a more traditional tafsir tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the book you actually say uh, something like he was in conversation with this tradition but not bound by it. Yes, um, yes. Could you maybe give us kind of a brief picture of what uh, I mean kind of what we might think of as kind of a normative tafsir tradition and how Mulasadra's work differs? Sure, sure. Well, um, uh, for – if we the, – the notion of a normative tafsir tradition is, is somewhat problematic. Um, but for Mulasadra, what, what he would have taken to be a normative tafsir tradition or what, or, or what he would have understood as tafsir is largely what we understand as tafsir, which is – the um, the the verse by verse commentarial tradition, and that's a conversation with that particular <clears throat> um, excuse me with with that particular uh, kind of world. So it's the it's tafsir uh, proper, not not tafsir that's being done, let's say in theology, but tafsir as a kind of genre. So that would take in the works of Razi, Zamakhshari. Of course, for Sadra, because he was a Shiite, he's working uh, also with Shiite tafsirs. Of, and Tabarsi and people like this. Um, now, one of the one of the things that impresses uh, itself upon us in in the Tafsir tradition is that the Mufassir who works within that genre is like as you mentioned uh, the point that I made in the book. They're bound by the genre in the sense that they have to comment not on every single verse. I mean, the, the, it varies from Mufassir um, to Mufassir, but they are uh, kind of confined by the, uh, the terminological and methodological confines of the genre in question. So you won't really find in any given uh, tafsir, even in the greatest tafsir, what the, the one that I consider the greatest in which many perhaps would agree with, uh, Fakhreddin Arazi, you're not going to find in there the most detailed kind of expositions of, um, let's say, let's say discussions on, uh, on on ontology that are that are trying to respond to and take in the the school of Ibn Arabi, for example, Ibn Arabi in particular. Razi, as far as we know, there's no indication he even read Ibn Arabi, um, but he he is he's working. Uh, uh, against the backdrop and responding to a certain philosophical and theological milieu, uh, and and in which he's concerned with, but he's also concerned with minute points of grammar. He's also trying to speak to uh, the interpretations of his upright contemporaries and his predecessors. Uh, when he, for example, in the uh, commentary on Surah Yusuf, he's very much concerned, on the one hand, with preserving a kind of Asherite picture of the infallibility of the prophets, Isma, of, of Joseph. And at the same time, he's trying to square that with his own rationalist project. And Mullah Sadra doesn't have those kinds of hang-ups as a commentator. He's therefore not bound to the genre of tafsir in that he can pretty much dip in as a philosopher uh, to the texts, pick what he needs. He can leave out all types of grammatical discussions he can leave out all kinds of theological issues that 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 well, in his case, they largely didn't even apply. He can bring in someone like Ibn Arabi, where uh, where a normal mufassir would not be able to do so, and he can do this all with a straight face and say, "Look, I'm still doing tafsir, and here's the, here's the proof. I'm citing all the authors that uh, of someone who knows tafsir would want to cite." So, in his commentary on any given Quranic verse, he will um, cite. Anyone from Zamakhshari, Baydawi, whom he likes, he likes Baydawi a lot. Razi, whom he likes a lot, and with whom he's got some kind of a rivalry too. Um, but once he's done that, then he'll move on to 
um, his own understanding of verses. Sometimes he'll he'll dwell a little bit on the linguistic meanings of things, and he'll just say, "Well, that's not really what we're concerned with here. Let's get into the meat of the matter." And then the entire project is to allow for uh, the the act of exegesis to uh, take place, but one in which uh, he's really forging kind of his own genre, so to speak, where it is exegesis, but it brings together of so many different disciplines at once that it's not just exegesis and it's not just philosophy and it's not just theology, but it's really a unique fusion of all of them. Now, uh, while he's he's not really following this more, I mean, traditional test here, uh, he does kind of lay out his own theory of hermeneutics. Yes. And, uh, and you talk about this. Uh, you mentioned he does this in a few works, but in the book you talk about this in this book he wrote, The Keys to the Unseen. Yes. Um, can you uh, kind of give us a, a, a brief picture of what, what that text is all about? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, um, that book, the, this book, Mufatih al-Ghayb, uh, which, which is also an alternative title, as you know, of Razi's tafsir, and it's, it's signaled by a uh, verse in the Quran. Uh, and in this, in, in, in this book, it has generally been called Mullah Sadra's most important theoretical work on the Quran. And that's pretty much what the secondary scholarship in, in Persian and some, some of it in English uh, wants to suggest. But going through the work, you realize that it's only um, the first, maybe, uh, you know, uh, the first couple of chapters in the book in which Mullah Sadra is really laying out what we call a kind of hermeneutic theory. Now, um, part of the difficulty is that in order to explain his understanding of hermeneutics, we need to unravel his ontology or his understanding of being because that's the place from from which everything else uh, takes uh, takes its uh, shape. So Mullah Sadr's Quranic hermeneutics is informed by his perspective on being. One of the things I did in the book was to show that even though the Mafatih, this book, is a later work, those sections on Quranic hermeneutics are actually rooted in a much earlier work by Mullah Sadra in which he lays out his most important understanding of being, the Asfar, his, most, his, his magnum opus. So th- that is to show that while he's thinking about being, he's also uh, crafting and fashioning an understanding of the Quran as tandem with his uh, general ontological uh, theory. So that's what I do in this chapter. And the basic hermeneutical perspective of Mullah Sadra, it is like his basic ontological stance. And this is general kind of picture in terms of his ontology in as broad terms as possible. He says, and again, he's working uh, with and against uh, a very long established tradition, largely inspired by Ibn Arabi uh, and, and, and his followers, namely Dawud al-Qaysar in particular, in which he says that uh, being uh, is the, that is wujud it is the fundamental reality of all things and that the universe is nothing other than uh, a conglomerate of the various degrees of intensity of being what he calls a shidda and dorf the, 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 the strength and the diminution of being or the intensity and diminution of being that means that the whole universe all the cosmos everything in cosmos, it's all punctuated by uh, being, by by existing somewhere on the scale of being. All things in the universe are nothing other than different grades of the same uh, the same thing that we that, that, that we refer to as being, wujud. It's just all uh, various levels of manifestation of this one wujud. Now, in order to explain what this wujud is, he tells us that wujud, being, it is that concept that is the most known to us. It's a, it's a self-evident concept. Being doesn't have a definition because it takes in all ground for definitions. Uh, yet, at the same time, being, it's the most obscure of possible things too because if it escapes definition, if it's such a well-known concept that escapes definitions, that means that it's not. you can never really get at it. Yeah, we know what being is. We see being all the time. We see aspects of being. We are being. We see human beings. We see little things that are being. I mean, we are trapped in this existence. We're like fish in the in the water, and we really don't know a reality outside of the water. Uh, if this is the case, as Mullah Sadra maintains, then what can we say 
about the nature of things. One of the uh, famous poems that the later tradition um, uh, uh, kind of likes to cite from Sabzavari, a Qajar follower of Mono Sadra, that speaks about the problem of being. It, go, it says that, uh, it, when explaining the reality of being, it says, um, uh, um, let me just remember the Arabic, yes. It says, مَفْهُمُهُ مِنْ أَعْرَفِ الْأَشْيَاءِ وَكُنْهُهُ فِي الْخَفَئِ that the concept of being is the best known of things, the most known of things. Yet its reality lies in utter obscurity. Now, if, it, if this is the case with being, that it's at once completely manifest, yet at the same time completely hidden, Mulasadra wants to explain that the Qur'an, as being a scripture, she wants to call the book of being, also, from one perspective, behaves like being. The Qur'an, by virtue of being the word of God and being a, uh, trapped in the realm of existence, in the, within the purview of existence, also is, uh, uh, on one level, not definable, not knowable, not understandable, because it's, it's the word of God. Yet, it's, all of its instantiations can be known, and its modes can help you understand what it is. And so he sees in the different modes of being and all of their individuations uh, kind of keys to understanding what being is. And with the Qur'an, he sees the same parallel. He says that the verses from the Qur'an are like the modes of being. Each of these, each of these modes manifest a certain aspect of the Qur'an. So in one famous passage in the Mufateh, which is translated in that, in that first chapter of the book, he says that just, just as being becomes individuated and takes on different modes and, and enters into conversation in the world and we can speak about it and we can, we can understand it and know it and it can take us to uh, a more abstract notion of being, he says, so too does the Qur'an um, as the divine word um, descend and become the word descends and becomes a book it becomes individuated so this theory this in, in the most broadest sense of the term where he has a vision in which the quran and being are two sides of the same coin from one perspective then allows him to venture into explaining what the nature of scripture is if scripture and the world about us and ultimately his, uh, his ontology are are are, um, are synonyms for one another, then whenever we in approach Scripture, whatever we have to say about Scripture also tells us something about the nature of reality. And therefore, his hermeneutical stance is that if you want to understand Scripture, you can delve into it, or you can also delve into being itself, that's why the act of philosophy becomes so important for Mulasadra, because it's also concerned fundamentally with the study of being. That's the fundamental um, uh, point of departure in, in Islam philosophy, studying being qua being in metaphysics. So this then allows him to focus on a cluster of different issues that come from this kind of preliminary stance in terms of what his ontology entails. If the if scripture entails uh, a kind of map, so to speak, of the human entelechy. That's because that is already configured in the way the universe is. So human beings who've penetrated deeply the realm of being in their psyche, in their soul, in their consciousness, are also, if they're directly engaged with scripture, finding the exact same parallel, and therefore their own the, the, the journey of their souls takes place within the realm of scripture. And then this all meets up very interestingly because it allows for Mullah Sadra to focus on the different levels of the cosmos and as they're manifest, not just in, uh, in the world, but also in scripture. And here he, following many other Sufi authors and, and also many non-Sufi authors, you find similar ideas in Baydawi, for example, in his tafsir, he wants to point up the importance of finding the signs, the ayat, that are within the human self and that are also to be found in the cosmos and that also are to be found in the verses in scripture. And of course here he has in mind that famous Quranic verse, 
سنريهم آياتنا في الأفاق وفي أنفسهم حتى يتبين لهم أنه الحق that we shall show them our signs and horizons and within themselves until they know that he is the real or that it is the real. <clears throat> so Mullah Sadra's general hermeneutical stance, um, if, we can, if, we can, if we can kind of try to abstract something from all of this, is that the, the Qur'an and being are synonyms, and by virtue, and as much as they are synonymous, there is also a sense, and I get into detail in which they're not synonymous, um, they, the, the two of them, penetration into them, entails really a kind of complementary act. And the deeper you go, therefore, into the word, the less meaningful and important the exoteric uh, nature of the word becomes. Not, I would never say meaningless, because that's the, the, the outward is always the gate into the inward. And this, uh, this is why Mullah Sadra is quite critical of the more exoteric kind of linguistic approach. And in one passage... In, in one of his Persian in his Persian work, he you know he uh, although has a great degree of respect for Zamakhshari, he also kind of rails at him and says you know he if you want to know the 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 husk of the of scripture then go read Zamakhshari's books because those are especially his tafsir because he really gets into the language and these kinds of things but if you want to know what the the heart of the matter is. You need to penetrate your own soul. Once you've done that, you'll find that the verses in your soul correspond directly to the verses that are to be found in the cosmos and within the scripture. Now, uh, this kind of very uh, complex understanding of scripture uh, plays out even more fully in this his tafsir of the first, the, the yes. opening chapter, um, which uh, maybe maybe you could tell us a little bit about. This text, I was surprised by the length of this text when yes. I when I read it. Um, so maybe just a, a little bit about when he wrote this, what it looks like, um, and then maybe we can get into the, some of the details. Yes, yeah, sure. So in, in terms of just the the more formal um, aspects of, of the book, um, this is uh, this his commentary upon the Fatiha is his last complete uh, commentary. So that alone was was um, a kind of signal for me that you know this is this is probably I'm going to probably find things in here that that you don't find in other tafsirs and 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 that intuition was correct because when you get into it it's so complete in its form so total in its argument it's quite lengthy as you said it's about 180 pages in Arabic and 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 each sentence is is pretty rough going um, um, it's it's therefore late complete work it's a work that um, uh, intentionally uh, seeks to correct many of his positions that he takes in other tafsir works and in other philosophical works and it is divided roughly according to the structure of Fatiha that is he just follows each verse and comments upon it but he in many ways lays out all of his cards in terms of his understanding of where he wants to take us in the very first 40 or 50 pages of, of the commentary, the first third, let's say, of the commentary, really tells you everything you need to know in terms of uh, where he's going uh, with the book. So there are no surprises as you move along. It is written in an extremely, like all of Monosoto's writings, in an extremely mellifluous kind of Arabic prose, really, really first-rate um, and therefore the, the, the difficulty that you'd encounter in more strictly speaking philosophical texts usually don't show up in Mulasara's writings. I'm just thinking of Avicenna Shifa, for example, how, how rough going each, each, each sentence is there. Um, conceptually speaking, of course, uh, the, the Mulasara's Tafsir is quite difficult to get by. And he um, makes it quite clear that the Fatiha, by virtue of being the uh, first chapter in the Qur'an, and by virtue of, as as he says, it being the the mother of the Quran or that which contains the entire Quran, and there he's following a very long uh, line of tradition of, of tafsir, as the, the, which says that the the, the the contains the entire Quran. He says that it has therefore all of the keys that we need to know um, about the, the the purpose of human life. It deals with the origin of human beings. It deals with their end. 
it deals with the middle path that they have to take from the end to this life. And each verse, therefore, uh, tells us something about uh, the ultimate goal of the human project. And the reason the emphasis is upon mercy is because that's the first Quranic uh, chapter. It begins with the with the with, with God as the merciful and the compassionate, and that allows Mullah Sadr to really venture into the nature of mercy. Now, in doing so, and I'll touch on this later on, uh, when he wants to tackle the problem of mercy, therefore, he needs to answer also other questions that come up along the way. What about um, wrath? What about uh, if God's mercy is open to all human beings? What can we say about bad people? What's the nature of uh, of praise, for example? Well, the, the Fatiha says uh, praise is for God. Alhamdulillah. What does that mean? What, what, what does praise mean? How does praise relate to the cosmogonic process? And so he really gets into the structure of the Fatiha and tries to explain how each aspect of uh, this chapter, opening chapter of the Quran, um, can, can uh, point up the manner in which things come about and have a residence in, 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 in a certain intermediary state called this world and how they end up ultimately just right where they came from. Now this again ties back to Mullah Sadra's ontology because if being is the root of all, of, of all things, if all things uh, uh, are just, you know, different grades on the on the on the scale or the of the devolution of being, then naturally the higher one ascends the scale of being, uh, the closer they uh, ascend to the uh, undifferentiated aspect of being, and so therefore he sees being and mercy as syn- synonyms as well. Mercy is that aspect of the most undifferentiated part of existence. So the Fatiha becomes for him a journey into the um, realms of being because they take you into the mercy. And that's ultimately what he's trying to argue for in the book is a universal salvation for all human beings, but with many interesting twists along the way. Um, since we don't have a, a ton of time here before uh, we have to wrap it up, Maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about this this uh, soteriology that yes. that Mullah Sadr sets out. Uh, tell us a little bit about his ideas about salvation, punishment, hell. Oh. Sure. Yes. Um, so the uh, being that being the most um, salient aspect of the of tafsir of the Fatiha, this argument that Mullah Sadr is making for uh, universal salvation. Uh, I need to say something about the predecessor that Mullah Sadra is drawing upon here. And that's, of course, Ibn Arabi. Mullah Sadra demonstrates in many, many places in his writings uh, his great indebtedness to Ibn Arabi. Um, and that comes out most clearly when he deals with um, ultimate kinds of questions, especially matters of cosmology, soteriology. He really is a very, very close follower of Ibn Arabi. And so, in many ways, he's presenting uh, the, the the same kind of argument that Ibn Arabi is making. Um, the broad outline of which is is quite simple, namely that um, all creatures come from uh, God is merciful, and in the end, as the Hadith uh, Qudsi says, God's mercy triumphs over His wrath. In the rahmati taghlibu my mercy triumphs over my wrath. That means that in the end, God will be merciful to all human beings. Now for Ibn Arabi, this means that he needs to get into how it can be that there's, there's, there, there's talk of hell in scripture. And you've had Muhammad Hassan Khalil on a previous um, issue, and he's written an excellent book about all the different debates that have taken place in medieval Islam, and in, in, even into the modern period, concerning the same uh, general question. If you're maintaining divine mercy, for whom? And if you're maintaining uh, a kind of exclusivity or, uh, or a particular thing, then for whom? Um, Ibn Arab is therefore concerned with this problem, and he does not want to deny uh, the explicit language of Scripture, which makes it clear that there is a place that's not uh, good for the, where some human beings will end up. So Ibn Arabi uh, tries to make a case for the nature of God's mercy 
but one in which will take in people who are who don't necessarily live up optimally to the human standards of of compassion and justice and who might have even been uh, bad people or negative people or unjust people and he tries to find a, a, you know wiggle with uh, them uh, into the framework of this mercy too and so that's largely what Mullah Sadra's uh, project is as well he's trying to find how it is that mercy can uh, pertain not just to good people but also to people who are not who are not good and the structure of the Fatiha what makes Mullah Sadra's argument so unique is that he sees the Fatiha as outlining ultimately for him the um, the, the trajectory of all human types when it comes to the realm of mercy. So he says, for example, in one uh, passage in his uh, Tafsir of the Fatiha, where he's commenting upon the word path, sirat, that shows up towards the end of the verse, um, he says that, he says something like, the, 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 the path that human beings take is nothing other than the path that is their own soul. So that, that sirat that you're asking for guidance upon in the Fatiha is nothing other than your own self. And all human beings, Sadra says, ultimately are therefore doing what, what, what their nature entails. And if that's the case, and if their nature entails that they follow their path, and if God's mercy, as he says in another passage, uh, embraces all things, as the Quran says, and it takes um, all things because it's essential, whereas wrath is accidental, then surely the essential nature of human beings who are brought into this world to follow their path naturally will lead back to the essential nature of, uh, uh, of, of, of their existence, which is, which is to mercy. So that's kind of the fundamental argument Mullah Sadr wants to make here. And in doing so, he still needs to account for the other language of Fataha, which speaks of the people who, with whom God is angry. With the, the people who have astrayed, and so there he tries to, and this, this is where his uh, reliance upon Ibn Arabi becomes most clear, he tries to show how even those kinds of individuals, even though they may have, they may be recipients by virtue of what they've done on earth, uh, to, uh, they may be recipients of the divine punishment, that wrath. Because it's not essential to the um, the structure of existence, whereas being by virtue of being being, a synonym for mercy, is essential, uh, naturally the wrath must eventually strip away. So even those individuals end up in a good place. Um, and in saying this, Mullah still maintains, like Ibn Arabi and unlike Ibn Taymiyyah, the eternality of hell. Yet it being an eternal place that not necessarily eternal when it comes to the uh, act of punishment. And by doing this, he's offsetting or trying to explain the, the, the different nature of the divine names as they're revealed in scripture. So the Fataha ultimately becomes a meditation upon divine mercy for Mullah Sadra. And in doing so, he's compelled to answer most clearly, uh, unlike, uh, unlike his stance in other works, why it is that mercy is so fundamental to the nature of things. And just like all human beings come from being, are mired in being, return to their source, which is being God, they too also come from mercy, are mired in the divine mercy, and ultimately, in differing forms, of course, return back to the source, which is mercy. Yeah, it's this. it sounds like a really fascinating text. Um, and, yes. And... Uh, in in the book, I, I should uh, also mention that you do uh, translate in some appendices uh, various parts of this, just uh, so we have some of this. Uh, but uh, per- perhaps in the future, more. It's, it really sounds like a wonderful text altogether. So yes, thank you. Um, so I think Mah- so too, <laughs> <laughs> Muhammad. Uh, we've uh, you know taken a lot of your time, and we, we definitely appreciate it. Um, perhaps before you. Uh, take off though you could tell us a little bit about what what things you might be working on now or projects you might have uh you know down the road planned sure um yeah one of the things that um right after the the the, the book was completed pretty much i i uh, began working on the harper collins study quran project which is um 
uh, headed by the editor in chief of San Jose Nasser and the um, associate editors being Joseph Lombard, Maria Takaki, and Rodala. And I joined on board uh, several years ago as an assistant editor. My job was to do several of the commentary. So that um, project, um, which is which will almost have been ten years in the making when it does come out, um, is is near is near completion. So with that with that uh, complete. I, I'm moving uh, in the direction of writing a uh, analytic monograph. I hope on uh, the famous 12th century figure, the great Sufi martyr Ain al Qudat Hamadani, who was a student of Ahmad Ghazali and who was put to death by the Saudi government, ostensibly on charges of heresy. So um, my, my my goal is to um, demonstrate. Uh, the uh, great indebtedness that the later Islamic intellectual tradition has uh, to Ayna Qudata, something that has not been um, fully um, acknowledged or, or 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 demonstrated before, and in doing so, to show how he really uh, brings together several different strands in um, this middle period between the early phase of Islamic thought and the later phase in which philosophy and mysticism become uh, um, more dependent upon one another. And so right now, he's just reading through all of his writings, and that's, that's going to take some years. And then hopefully I can, I can put some form to the matter, so to speak, in due course and, and write a book on that. Yeah, well, that sounds excellent, and uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners are looking forward to uh, the Harper Collins project coming together. So we're we're glad to hear that that's coming out soon. Yes, I, I, I we all are too. <laughs> <laughs> I bet I bet you all are ready for that to be done as well. So yes. All right. Well, thank you very much, Muhammad, and uh, again, we appreciate you talking to us. Thank you, Christian, for having me. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. That was my conversation with Muhammad Rustam about his great new book, The Triumph of Mercy, Philosophy and Scripture in Mulasadra, which was published by Sunni Press in 2012. Thanks for listening.